Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Micah Mortali. Micah is the director of the Kripalu Schools, which includes the School of Yoga, Ayurveda, Integrative Yoga Therapy, and the School of Mindful Outdoor Leadership, which he founded in 2018. With Sounds True, Micah has written a new book called Rewilding, Meditations, Practices, and Skills for Awakening in Nature. To be truthful, this conversation dropped me into a place that I wasn't expecting, a place of deep grief and longing about our disconnection as a human species from our very ground, the ground of the earth. Micah Mortali, I think, has some powerful suggestions for how we can come and face that grief and also engage in healing, actually at the deepest level. Here's my conversation with Micah Mortali. To begin with, Micah, can you explain what you mean by this word, the title of your new book, Rewilding? Sure. Rewilding is a term that generally has two meanings. Uh, One refers to the rewilding of ecosystems, and uh, one refers to the rewilding of human life. So um, the rewilding of ecosystems, you know, could refer to, um, you know, reintroducing um, sort of uh, megafauna or um, predators into an environment where they have not been for some time. So that could be something like the introduction or the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone National Park. Or um, there are folks in Europe who are talking about, you know, reintroducing wild elephants into parts of the landscape where they haven't been since the last ice age. Um, rewilding could also mean letting certain bioregions or large ecosystems go go wild and trusting that the earth and those environments will govern themselves and come to um, a place of, of health and well-being without human interference, essentially. So that's one aspect of it. And uh, the other is human rewilding. And human rewilding is based on the idea that, um, you know, modern human beings um, are essentially you could think of us as like a a domesticated version of homo sapiens um kind of like a um like a terrier is a domesticated version like of a wolf right so like modern human beings uh, we've kind of changed as the years have gone by and we've sort of adapted to um living 
in indoor environments, like not being very physical, not being connected to where our food comes from, not being connected through our senses to stimulating environments, like um, just outdoor environments that are so stimulating to our senses. So human rewilding is about, um, you know, beginning to reach out and reconnect with ways of living and being um, that most hunter-gatherer societies um, sort of have access to. Um, but it doesn't necessarily meaning being a hunter-gatherer. It may mean things like um, gardening, you know, beginning to grow some of your food or foraging for food. It might mean, um, you know, walking barefoot or even just intentionally spending time outdoors, beginning to become more intimate with uh, the lands that you live on. So there's a lot to it, but those are the two main categories that I kind of talk a little bit about in the book. And I focus mostly on the human side of it. And in our conversation, we're going to talk mostly about human rewilding. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about ecosystem rewilding. One of the points you make in your new book that I thought was so interesting was that as human beings, you believe that in our collective psyche, there's actually something in us that longs to have some kind of contact with what you call apex predators, even to the point we have such a psychological need for this that we can even make up seeing that we're seeing animals, big cats, because we long for this connection. So can you unpack that, explain that to our listeners? Sure. Yeah. So that's something that um, George Monboy writes about actually in his book, Feral, where he really gets into um, that side of rewilding and, and his work is, is really exceptional. Um, and, you know, what, what he was talking about was, um, you know, in Great Britain, there have been like hundreds of sightings of large cats, like mountain lions, generally, basically. Um, and so, you know, he talks about how the authorities have gone out and really tried to find these big cats that people are, are, are reporting seeing. And, you know, what they've concluded is that they're not there, um, that people might be seeing a house cat from a distance, um, but not being able to gauge its size and projecting onto it all these legends and stories and folklore about these, these cats that, that are there. And he kind of talks about how for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, the saber-toothed tigers and these big cats were one of the primary predators that human beings were in relationship with. Like, they gave so much meaning to our lives. Um, and he kind of puts out this idea that modern people still kind of hunger for that wildness. And uh, what I write about in the book is kind of how I've experienced that living here in Western Massachusetts in the Berkshires, um, where we do have um, bobcats and we have black bear and coyote and um, even folks talk about having koi wolves, which are like a mix between coyotes and wolves. And there have been reports and um, stories of mountain lions who are moving through our region, may not be denning here, but certainly may be moving through the Berkshires. And I write about how, um, you know, people who come to Kripalu are like their eyes get so wide and they want to hear stories about bears. And, you know, when people are in the woods and they see a bear, it's very meaningful. And there's a, there's a fear, but there's also this sense of being alive and um, many people that I work with here want to hear bear stories. And I've had bear encounters in the woods. I write about an encounter I had with a bear in the book, um, which was really powerful and meaningful for me. Um, and kind of put out this idea that modern people, because we spend 
more than 90% of our lives indoors and 11 hours a day on a screen, you know, we don't have relationships anymore with the more than human world, our, you know, the, our relatives here on this planet, the, the, the wild ones, and that um, we may be suffering from what Robin Wall Kimmerer calls uh, species loneliness, um, which I thought was an amazing idea, you know, this idea of species loneliness. And um, certainly some people meet that through having pets, um, you know, but with fewer and fewer even farms, fewer people even have relationship with domesticated animals or farm animals, um, you know, that also played a big role in, in our lives for so long. So um, it's a real thing. Um, it's something that um, I've witnessed and experienced. And uh, I think it speaks to sort of our need for having um, really con- having connection with um, sort of our, our relatives. I like to refer to, you know, what we call animals as you know, our relatives in the more than human world, not just animals, but because we are animals too. I mean, I feel like human beings, we're, we're an animal. Um, so, you know, um, we need to have relationships with other life forms on this planet. You know, it's interesting that you talk about how people come to Kripalu and they want to hear these stories of wild animal encounters, because even though I live in Boulder, Colorado, and have had wild animal encounters myself and hear stories, I want to hear your stories, Micah. I want to hear it, and I want our listeners to hear it. And I do think it comes out of a sense of being cut off and hungry for more contact with wild animals. So share your bear story with us and why it was so important to you. Um, uh, probably about, um, a little over 10 years ago or so, probably maybe, maybe it was 12 years ago. Um, I was, um, mountain biking in a forest near where I live. Um, and it was like a beautiful October afternoon, just a perfect day, like mid sixties, peak foliage, just really crisp air, but just beautiful. And, uh, stopped my mountain bike on top of a hill in a very remote part of the forest and, uh, got off my bike and, um, saw this beautiful oak tree about 50 feet off the trail, which was on a little hill sort of overlooking a, a little valley, a wooded valley. And uh, I went over and I sat down under this oak tree. And um, this was a time when I was, uh, before I was married with children and when I was doing a lot of yoga, I was really deep in my sort of mindfulness yoga meditation practice. And I sat down under a tree and I pu- pulled my hood up over my head and closed my eyes. And I just started to meditate. And, um, it was a really good time in my life. I was feeling a lot of gratitude and, and I just started praying and, um, I just kind of said a prayer, you know, like I asked, um, the, my divine spirit, um, to come in, to come and share in my gratitude with me. It was like a, I was just feeling really good about where I was in my life. And I just was saying, thank you. And, and I really just invited, um, spirit to come and sit with me. And those were my words that I spoke out loud in that moment. And, uh, for some reason or other, a few seconds after I uttered those words, I started to hear like footsteps in the forest and I thought it was somebody hiking. So I just continued to meditate. And, um, and then I noticed that the sound of movement was getting a little closer, a little closer. And I started to wonder what was going on. Um, but I remained still. And, and then I heard a twig snap right behind the tree, like two feet behind me. And I heard a loud exhalation, like a, and all the hair on the back of my neck stood up and every cell in my body, I knew that there was a bear like right behind me. Um, and just the adrenaline was flowing and I really slowly turned my head just to look over my left shoulder. 
and about 15 inches behind my shoulder was I could see the back side from like the shoulders to the rump of a really large black bear. And, you know, I just like slowly turned my head back and um, in a split second, all these survival thoughts went through my mind. Like, do I run? Do I get up? Do I yell? Like, do I climb a tree? And I immediately had the sense that the best thing to do was just remain calm and not do anything. Um, so I just was sitting there and kind of breathing and I guess I was, what I was doing in that moment was what I was trained to do in Kripalu yoga, which is breathe, relax, feel, watch, and allow. I was just meditating on my fear essentially and my fight or flight response. Um, and then I heard the bear move and it kind of came around to my right. And it was just about, again, a foot and a half or two feet to my right now. And it just settled down and actually sat right next to me. Um, and it, it seemed like it was an eternity. It was probably only a minute that the bear and I were sitting next to one another. And I had this thought, like, I wonder what it'll feel like to have a bear bite my face. You know, <laughs> it was like, don't think about that. Um, and, uh, and then the bear got up and it started to walk away and I was relieved and I turned and I looked at the bear and when it was about 20 feet away or so it turned and it looked back at me and we made eye contact and then it just walked over the hill and out of sight. And, uh, you know, I stood up and my legs actually gave out. I kind of fell down because my legs were so wobbly. Um, and I got on my bike and I just like shot out of those woods. And, and as I was riding out of the woods, um, I simultaneously was just feeling so much gratitude. It was like the most amazing thing that's ever happened. And also like, wow, I, I felt lucky, you know, um, as well, because it was incredible to be that close to a creature that was, you know, couple hundred pounds um, heavier than me and such an impressive uh, wild being. Um, so that, that experience has always stayed with me and, and I've had other bear encounters as well. You know, a couple other very interesting bear encounters. And, and then, you know, as a, as I've um, been a mindful outdoor guide in the Berkshires and launched our school here at Kripalu um, have had other like really just profound experiences um, with, you know, barred owls or with ravens on the mountain and, you know, squirrels and uh, porcupines. And yeah, it's, 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 it's quite um, nourishing um, in my, in my life. It's been quite nourishing to have these experiences of interspecies connection um, out on the land. What would you say to someone who feels species loneliness, as you've described it, especially for some of these large predator species and you know they're just not in their environment like okay they have a domesticated you know cat or dog and they see squirrels but that's not really filling some part of their psyche yeah well you know i what i would say is um and my experience has been that i can get the same um i can get a lot maybe not the same but i can get a lot of that sense of um that connection that nourishing connection um from spending time with the the robins that are nesting in my backyard or, you know, with gray squirrels that are in the park, you know, foraging for hickory nuts or acorns or um, I, there is something unique about these megafauna. Um, and yet at the same time, um, I think that we also miss a lot of the simple everyday connections that are right there. And, you know, I, I think we, you know, I would really encourage 
folks to not put these big megafauna up on a pedestal, like those are the kind of connections that are the most nourishing. You know, I would say that, you know, um, you can make a connection with a tree uh, in your neighborhood. You can make a connection with, you know, a family of nesting um, blue jays, you know, in, in the park near your home or, grow, or maybe on the, up on the edge of your building in the city. Um, it's not so much about how big the animals are, but for me it's more about can you make a, can you get to know an individual bird? You know, first I identify, okay, I know that that's a robin or of the robin species, but as I spend time out there every day or regularly, I get to know that, oh, that's a particular robin. And then as you get to notice that bird, you'll notice like, oh, I see that, you know, it's struggling to raise its young. Like a whole world opens up of connection. And I think it's, it's that intimacy and that recognition of individuals within different species that can be really powerful. That's very helpful, Micah. You know, I think that applies to everybody. Now, it's interesting, this term species loneliness, I really took to it. And also another term that you introduce in your book, Rewilding, place blindness. Yeah. How many of us live so much indoors and in front of our screens that we actually become blind to the place that we live. And I'd be curious to know, what do you think are some of the symptoms that somebody might have that they could identify? Like, huh, I think I might have some place blindness. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I guess first off, I would say that um, I would want to encourage folks to not like feel any shame around this, you know, that, um, you know, with our modern lives, it's not it's no it's not easy to spend time outside, especially if you have an office job or you have a commute. I mean, you're kind of forced to spend your time either in a car or in an office, and um, and so I think it's the structures of modern society that that kind of make that almost inevitable that most people are going to have an experience of this. So um, just compassion for yourself if you feel like you know, hey, I don't know much about where I live. Um, but it can be overcome. Well, first of all, some of the symptoms of it would be like, you know, you walk outside, you look around. Um, I don't really know much about this land I'm on. And I guess some questions that could get you started might be like, who are the indigenous people on this land? You know, um, who was displaced by colonization on this land I'm on? Like, that's always a good place to start. Um, you could also start with, um, you know, what, what, what kind of ecosystem, what kind of bioregion am I in? Um, what are the common species that grow here? What are the trees and the shrubs? Um, you know, what are the flora and the fauna? You know, what kind of animals live here? What kind of birds? Um, you know, and just kind of notice, like, do I, do I know any? Do, what do I know about this land? And maybe start there. Um, you know, in, this, in our school, we, we build into our mindful outdoor experiences the first step always being what we call an orientation to place, which is created to purposely overcome place blindness. And so we will talk a little bit about um, who are the indigenous people on this land. So for me, where, where I guide a lot here um, in Western Mass at Kripalu, um, the indigenous people here are the Stockbridge Muncie Mohicans. And so I'll talk a little bit about their history and um, invite their voice into the orientation. Um, also talk about where they are now, you know, and we have friends in the Stockbridge Muncie tribe who we invite out to teach in our programs. And so, you know, their voice is speaking for themselves. 
Um, but then you can also just kind of learn a little bit about the history of the land. You know, um, you know, places like New York City, you know, as an example, has incredible ecological history to learn. Uh, it's an island, you know, and, and there's springs bubbling up underneath the city that have to be pumped out all the time and incredible bird migration coming through Central Park. So even if you're in a city or an urban or suburban environment, um, there's so much richness uh, to learn about the land where you are. Um, that it's, you know, there's just so many things that one could, could begin by learning. Um, another thing I'd suggest is, um, spend a little bit of time regularly just sitting on your land. And, um, maybe that's sitting in your backyard or in a park near where you, where you live, or maybe if you don't have any of that, just sitting by your window and looking out and kind of getting into a meditative state, noticing movement. And then as the days and the seasons go by, beginning to understand and notice the movement of um, the, um, our relatives out there who are flying and walking and crawling and um, getting to know them. And that's a practice that we call sit spot. Um, it's known throughout the Nature Connection community as the sit spot practice. Um, and there's many different nature meditations that you can weave in uh, so that you can start to bring the mindfulness practice into your um, getting to know your land as well, which I think is really helpful. Tell me what you mean by that sit spot. Yeah, so um, a sit spot is a place where you feel safe and comfortable and connected to your land, the land that you live near or on. And the sit spot practice is about going to that place uh, regularly, um, if not every day, a couple times a week, and just sitting there with your eyes open for at least 15 minutes and observing movement and activity on the land. Um, and this was a practice that um, kind of originated with um, the really famous tracker Tom Brown Jr., who learned it from his teacher Stalking Wolf, who um, comes from the Apache lineage. Um, and Tom passed it on to John Young. Uh, and John Young has a, a wilderness awareness school, um, and John's written about it in his books. And it's it's just become a practice that's really become uh, very loved and universal in, in sort of the nature connection communities because it's very simple, it's very accessible, um, and because it's, in my opinion, probably one of the most effective ways to overcome place blindness. So I sit for 15 minutes in this spot that I've chosen, and what do I do for 15 minutes? You observe movement and activity on the land. And that's it. What about when I start thinking that I'm planning my breakfast or my lunch yeah. or my to-do list and all the rest of that? You just come back to the movement on the land. So, it, you know, the practice can be, you can use your breath as an anchor to get you in the moment. Um, but unlike sort of more inward forms of meditation, um, you're focusing on your senses here. So you could, you know, when I do the practice, I like to focus on um, kind of anchor my sense of sight um, as I kind of go into there's a, a way of seeing, which is sometimes called uh, wide angle vision or owl vision, where you use your peripheral vision and you let your, um, your eyes relax and you just kind of, you can pick up on very subtle movement on the land when you, when you broaden your way of seeing to pick up on per, your peripheral. And uh, it's called owl eyes um, or wide angle vision. And you can make that be a part of your sit spot practice. And of course, your mind is going to wander 
Um, but you just keep bringing your focus back to what you're, what you can see and feel. And the really cool thing about it, Tammy, is that, um, you know, you will begin to notice like very subtle air current movements as like the grass at your feet begins to just move ever so slightly. You'll begin to pick up on things like you might notice like hundreds of ants moving, you know, in different areas on the ground, like things that you normally would totally miss. Um, you might pick up on, you know, a butterfly just very gently moving its wings, you know, 50 feet away and to the left, something you wouldn't have noticed. Um, the more still you become, the more you're going to pick up on. And the more you pick up on, um, the more you're going to have a window in to the incredibly rich and exciting world that's unfolding outside of our homes like all the time. You know, you'll see birds of prey flying overhead and how it affects, you know, the songbirds in the area. You know, you'll notice the way that, you know, you might even if you become still notice like a, a fox or a coyote or some other um, animal on the land that, you know, normally might not come out if we're just tromping around making a bunch of noise. But when we sit still, you know, we, we, we create less disturbance and we can pick up on more activity. There's a word that you introduce in your book, rewilding, that I wasn't familiar with that really intrigued me. The word is sponda, and you define it as sacred tremor, a word from tantric yoga. And I wonder if you can help connect that to this experience where yeah. we're sitting sure. in this period of time. Will we start to become aware of this sacred tremor, potentially? Yeah, this spanda is a really cool word and you know it's based in tantric yoga and it's it's it the sacred tremor is the movement that's going on the vibration of all creation. Um in a lot of yoga and meditation classes we talk a lot about stillness and in yoga certainly like you know the uh, sort of Patanjali's definition of yoga is sort of like to still the fluctuations of the mind. Um and, you know, there is definitely a, a stillness that we seek in our bodies and in our awareness when we come into our sit spot and when we're bringing mindfulness onto the land. But, you know, it's the stillness of the observer amidst all of the vibration and activity of creation. You know, so it's that still point within. You could think about it like almost like I think about it like at the eye of the hurricane. There's that still point within, but there's the swirl of activity that's always unfolding as well simultaneously. Um, and so my experience has been in, in the sit spot that um, when I go out and, and I sit and I allow myself to become more still, to slow my breathing, um, to settle into the present moment, that as I find that sense of presence and that sense of relative stillness, that there is also this, um, this, this constant sense of vibration and movement on the earth. And even on the stillest day in the forest, there's still subtle, subtle currents of air that are moving. There's always movement happening. And um, as you become more attuned, you can pick up more on what that kind of sacred tremor is in each moment. And it can be a very um, awakening experience um, as one's awareness becomes more heightened. And that's one of the things that's very beneficial about these sort of mindful rewilding practices is that um, along with like helping to overcome species loneliness and place blindness, there's this other idea, and maybe you were going to ask about it, of sensory anesthesia, um, which is when we are in indoor environments too much, 
um, our senses are not stimulated in the ways that they were during our evolution when we spent most of our time outside. Our senses become dull. So when we're outside in the elements, paying attention to this sacred tremor, paying attention to these more finely subtle movements on the land, it awakens our senses. And when our senses are more awake, we feel more alive. And, um, you know, that's one of the wonderful benefits of these practices is that, um, you know, we do walk away with a sense of more aliveness, um, which is also, I think, one of the one of the great benefits over, you know, thousands of years of many of the different yoga traditions is that awakening of prana, awakening of life force, um, stimulating and awakening of the senses um, and feeling alive and awake in our human experience. You also talk in Rewilding about this feeling of being an exile. And, you know, you put this all together, species loneliness, being an exile, sensory <laughs> anesthesia. I mean, it's a dark picture. And I'm bringing this up because I notice as you're talking, I'm feeling an incredible sense of loss and grief, to be honest with you. And I'm, I'm feeling that in my own experience, and yet I feel like a very lucky person to live uh, right on the edge of open space in Boulder, Colorado, and to spend time uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. And yet, I work in an office building, I commute in my car, I spend a whole lot of time involved with digital media, and I feel such a loss, to be honest with you, and such a sense of longing. And I just wonder if you can address that head on, and when people encounter that, how you work with them yeah. with it? Oh, it's such a that is such a great question. Um, you know, I, me I mentioned uh, John Young, um, who's, who's somebody I really respect, uh, a great nature connection teacher, and uh, you know, a friend of mine who was at a um, an event with him um, shared the story with me. A, a person in the audience asked John, you know, what would you recommend somebody learn to be a great like nature connection guide? And he said, uh, according to this person, he said, uh, do grief work. Um, and that really stuck with me. Um, there is a huge, there is a tremendous loss. Um, you know, I tried to be, I tried to address this um, in the book and not hide from the fact that, you know, we're living in a time of great crisis. Um, and, you know, not to sugarcoat, you know, this is like, you know, I didn't want to make rewilding be a prescription for just, um, you know, getting by in modern life. I feel like, I feel like yoga and mindfulness and, and rewilding um, are practices that um, are going to in some ways and should in some ways disrupt a little bit um, and invite us to imagine like different ways of living on the earth that's more in harmony with the earth. But the first step is to acknowledge that um, it, it hurts and it's painful and there, there has been a, a tremendous loss. Um, I, I feel it, you know, um, Tammy, I work in an office too. Like I have a full-time job at Kripalu and the vast majority of my time is at my desk and all the things you just described, I can really relate to. Um, you know, I don't live off the grid, you know, I'm not out in the woods 10 hours a day. Like, um, I have to squeeze and integrate these practices into my life, um, as well. The reality is that, um, many of the folks that I work with, um, you know, when what I'm seeing is they're they're running 
to our School of Mindful Outdoor Leadership. They're running into these programs. They're getting here, and they're desperate. Um, they're, 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 they have a pent-up uh, hunger, need for reconnection with uh, the outdoors. Um, and it is real. You know, I think that the iPhone was developed in 2007 or so. You know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, Internet addiction was like 23 hours a week was considered like you were addicted to the Internet, like you had an addiction. Like now, the average American's on a screen 11 hours a day. So we've blown past that. It's now, you know, the, the, the change has been so sudden and so dramatic that, you know, we're just in totally uncharted territory. Um, the, the grief is very real. We're losing species um, at an alarming rate. Um, I was watching uh, this Amy Poehler uh, movie on Netflix. It's like she and her friends go on like a trip to like the wine country. It's like this totally goofy SNL um, kind of SNL team film. And it's mm-hmm. a really funny movie all the way through. And then like right at the end, Amy Poehler has like kind of like an emotional breakdown. And she starts like really crying about the, uh, the loss of the rhinos. And how, like, how am I supposed to live in a world where there's no rhinos? You know, and it was very poignant. And I think it was, you know, it was very powerful for me to see that. And I really wonder, like, how much grief the, like, normal folks are carrying today around the loss of these things, you know. The scientists are telling us that our oceans could die in the next 30 years. You know, this is heavy stuff. Um, so how do we address it, you know, why I wrote rewilding because I think the only way to address it is to go outside and begin to rebuild our relationship with the living earth. I think that the earth has the solutions. I don't think we have them. And I think we have to get out there and start listening and paying attention to the weather, to the animals and the plants on our lands we have to become a part of this earth again if we're going to be a part of the what's coming next. What do you mean, Micah, the earth has the solutions? Well, you know, um, you know I, heard, I heard somebody say this not too long ago, and I can't remember who, I think it might have been Thomas Berry, but I think he was referring to Hurricane Andrew that hit Florida, you know, 25 years ago. You know, he, he said, the hurricane is our teacher, it will teach us how to live in Florida. It will teach us how to build our houses and where to build our houses, right? Um, the earth can teach us how to live here if we listen. But if you look at the modern home, it's built with absolutely no consideration of where it is on the land. You know, our entire society today, for the most part, is built without any thought about how to how we can be a um, beneficial presence on the earth. So I think if we're going to shift that, then we need to figure out where we fit in, you know, how we can live with the bears, how we can live with, you know, the, the, the salamanders, how we can live with the bumblebees. And the only way we can do that, I believe, is if we actually go outside and start to develop personal, intimate, reciprocal relationships with our bees and our bears um, and our wildflowers. Um, because the problem, I, as I see it, is that because we're so disconnected, 
that we're not really noticing the losses that are happening in our local environments. And especially for children, and this is something that Richard Louvre wrote in his book, Last Child in the Woods, if children are being brought up today without intimate bonds with their natural uh, environments, where will the future stewards and poets and environmentalists and activists come from? Because all the folks who are, in, who are doing that work today can trace their passion for it back to childhood experiences of deep bonding with the earth. So that's why I think it's, we have to do the, the cognitive work. We have to make the decisions about our, you know, what products we're going to buy and all of those things. But I think deeper than that, in a more psychological place, we have to actually begin re, re, like rebuilding our relationships with the living earth. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you said something I thought was really interesting, how yoga, mindfulness, and rewilding, being out in nature, that your hope is that these practices will be disruptive, not just ways we can find to calm calm the you-know-what down and survive this time that we're in, but that they'll actually be disruptive and create changes. Tell me more what you mean by that, how if we engage in a rewilding practice that will have a disruptive effect. Well, <clears throat> you know, It's it's um, it's hard to it's hard to gauge the effect um, that little things will have on people. Um, you know, I think we've all in our lives like um, maybe met someone in, who's you know even briefly in our lives who's you know had a small impact on us and caused you know a whole chain of events to lead us down another path. I think it's kind of like that, um, you know, with rewilding and with mindful nature connection practices. Um, the the experience of um, the experience of getting to know uh, the land that you live on um, has all of these benefits for for us as individuals. Like it can help us, you know, reduce our stress and boost our immunity and um, you know, sleep better and reset our circadian rhythms and all these things are really important. Um, but they can also like, as we get to know our lands, um, we could, as we get to know our watersheds, as we get to know the animals that migrate through our areas and we start to appreciate their presence and we start to learn from them, um, that actually can change big decisions that people make, um, in their local areas, in their towns, in their cities, you know, it's these experiences of appreciation, um, of, of gratitude for all of the gifts of our environments that compel people to, um, you know, work to develop land trusts and get into conservation, um, and get out and start growing food in their backyard. And all of these little changes, if more and more people start getting outside and not just hiking, you know, through the woods with their earphones on, but listening, feeling, awakening their senses and paying attention, I think it can kind of reactivate um, a way of being in relationship to the earth that's kind of been dormant for a couple hundred years. Now, there's a really interesting part of your book that introduced me to something that I wasn't familiar with, which is that people are developing ancestral skills is 
is what you call it. Yeah. Things like friction fire building. And I was like, really? People are, are going out into the woods and they want to start a fire without using matches or a lighter? What are these people doing and why are they doing it? So uh, broaden my understanding <laughs> here. My yeah. Opinion. Oh, so this is really cool stuff. Um, yeah. Um, there's, there's a big movement um, today of folks who are, um, you know, beginning to and have been um, getting reacquainted with um, what, what I like to call ancestral skills or earth skills is what they're called in the community. Um, so, you know, these are, these are practices like um, learning how to make fire with a bow drill, um, you know, which is um, an ancient, ancient technique. It's um, it's something you might've read about in your boy or girl scout manual, maybe as a kid, or, you know, you knew maybe an uncle who told you that they had done it once upon a time. But, um, for many people, this is like magic, you know, it's like secret knowledge. Um, but, uh, the reason why, you know, I, I folded into our work in the school of mindful outdoor leadership and why I practice these skills is because, um, you know, these skills help me um, feel a sense of uh, connection uh, to the earth in very practical and sacred ways. Um, I learned the bow drill and uh, some of these skills uh, down at the Tracker School, which was founded by Tom Brown Jr., who's one of the preeminent um, nature connection uh, sort of uh, tracking teachers in the world. Um, and what Tom taught us in the school was that... Um, you know, we approach these practices from a place of deep gratitude. Um, you know, gratitude for the wood that we build our bow drill kit out of. You know, gratitude to all of the elements. Gratitude to the element of fire. Um, gratitude to the ancestors who have passed this knowledge on. Um, you know, because when you go camping or you spend a few nights out in the woods away from modern life, um, one of the things that becomes clear to most folks, certainly for me, is that your needs become very basic and very simple. You know, I need a, root, a little bit of shelter. I have a tent. I need to stay dry. I need, you know, a hot meal and a fire and, and companionship, somebody to talk to. And if you cover those basic needs, you feel so happy generally. You know, folks who go out on week-long or multi-week expeditions, you know, most time folks come back, they feel amazing. They're sleeping better. So there's something to be said about simplification and getting in touch with what's basic. You know, at the end of the day, what do we really need as human beings? And what we really need is we need fire, you know, for the most part to cook our food and boil our water and warm us and, prov and give us uh, com companionship and comfort at night. We need to be able to create shelter. And so how do you create a shelter if you don't have a tent or a tarp or all this other expensive gear? Well, you know, there's ways to do it, and they're really fun. And if you know how to do these things, it kind of forces you to get down into the earth, to get your hands dirty, and to get really close to the soil, close to the leaves and the branches. Um, all of these kind of earth skills that people are, are really interested in these days, um, they're very nourishing, and they're very meditative as well. Um, they also awaken the senses. So the bow drill is one example of it. Um, you know, and essentially what happens with the bow drill is, you know, and, and I, I, there's some illustrations in the book to demonstrate this, but, you know, you're essentially turning a wooden spindle, 
um, against a, a, a small piece of wood with something that looks like a bow, and you're drawing the bow back and forth, and the spindle is spinning, and it's being pressed down into another piece of wood, and the, the friction creates heat, and that heat begins to smoke, and you have a little bit of dust from the wood that's being ground off, and eventually that dust will ignite into a coal, which just smolders, and you place it into a little bit of a, like a little bundle of tinder that you hold in your hand, and you blow into it, and then out of your palm leaps a flame. And if you've ever seen it, or if you've ever witnessed it done, or if you've ever done it, it's an experience for me, which sometimes just brings tears to my eyes. It's, it's as if you step out of time into an eternal moment, and you share an experience which was so pivotal for the human species to be able to perform this almost like magical task. And even for modern people today who could just take a lighter out of their pocket and make fire, when they see a bow drill fire leap into flame, it's something they don't ever forget. It's very powerful. And, and, I, and there's some mystery around it. I'm not always sure exactly why that is, but it, it never fails to be something that folks find very, very impactful. Okay, just to be a little provocative for a moment, that person who says, look, the, you know, I live in the modern world. I get spending 15 minutes or more sitting and observing and being with what's actually here, but why wouldn't I go to my local camping store and buy a great tent that is waterproof? And, you know, they've so, such great technology in the last couple decades to make these lightweight tents that work so well. Doesn't that make a lot more sense? And then I can be a lot more comfortable. And also this boundary of like, you know, I don't want to be that uncomfortable. I don't want to have like water dripping on me at night when I'm outside and yeah. I don't want to be cold. Like, you know, that, that doesn't sound fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's not for, and it's not for everybody. Um, yeah. I mean, I have tents and I usually, you know, camp, I usually do use a tent or a hammock or something, but, um, and yet, when I go off into the forest with my kids or on my own, I always know that if I'm going to stay, I could stay out there that night and make a debris shelter with nothing but the leaves on the forest floor. And even if the temperature dropped to 10 degrees or 20 degrees, I could survive out there overnight like the squirrels do by burrowing into a, a, a pile of leaves. And there is something about knowing how to do that and having done that, that for me changes my experience of being out on the land. And I offer it in the book because I wanted to provide some things that were aspirational for folks. You don't ever have to do them, but to know that they're there. And if you feel called to endeavor to learn and embrace some of those more advanced skills um, can be extremely empowering for folks. So, yeah, I agree. You know, sleeping in a debris hut, not always the most comfortable thing, um, but to have the knowledge and to have the experience of it um, can, can be very life-changing. Well, I think it also just brings up this challenge for some people, which is I don't want to be uncomfortable. And it could be at an even simpler level, like, you know, I don't want to get bitten by bugs yep. or like all the reasons people have for not getting outside more. Yep. And just talk to that for a moment. Well, um, mo we're, we're too comfortable today. Um, I think as a species, we're, we're, we're way too comfortable. And I think that's one of the reasons why our, you know, 
you know, we have a host of all these health issues. Um, you know, being in temperature controlled environments all the time, um, and not experiencing the stimulation, the sensory awakening of um, having our bodies come into contact with the elements in the earth um, isn't good for us. It's strengthening to be uncomfortable and be outside and get cold and get hot and get wet and get dry. Um, you know, we kind of evolved in in relationship to the to the elements in the environment. So um, there is something to be said for. Um, getting out there. And one of the things that we say in the school, and I believe, is there is no such thing as bad weather, right? There's like bad clothing, bad preparation. Um, you know, so, you know, being prepared, and that's why I write in the book about like, you know, you should dress appropriately, you know, have layers, have a waterproof layer on, have the right gear in your knapsack so that when you go out to mindfully connect with the earth, that you feel ready to do it. Um, but I think a little bit of discomfort is, uh, a lot of times, like exactly what most modern people actually really need. How do you help people who say, but I don't want to be uncomfortable? I mean, that's the whole thing, you know, that there's like a, a Rubicon we have to cross. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, you, you can't really force people to, you know, to do that. I think uh, if folks don't want to cross that threshold, then that's their um, that's their decision if, if, if they'd rather not. Um, but in my experience, you know, when, when I have folks in my programs, you know, who maybe haven't walked barefoot in 25 years and are a little uncomfortable sitting on the grass, um, maybe because they're afraid of ticks, usually, um, you know, if, if we create a safe space, in other words, if, if that's okay, you know, and, and a lot, I think that's a big, an important thing. It's like, it's okay if you don't feel safe you know, um, in, in the woods, or if you're worried about ticks, that's okay. That's understandable. Um, it's okay. If you're concerned about being uncomfortable, getting bitten by ticks, like there's things we can do to help you. You know, you can use bug spray or, you know, you can wear clothes to cover yourself. So you are comfortable, but I would encourage folks to just explore those edges a little bit. It doesn't mean you have to go out and do something extreme or sleep in a debris hut. Everybody has a different edge around their relationship with being outdoors. And, um, you know, rewilding, and I tried to make the book very accessible so that, you know, no matter where you are in your comfortability, just explore where your edges are. You know, so maybe it is just like walking barefoot outside a little bit every day, or, um, you know, maybe it's just sitting on the grass and seeing if how that feels and if you can push that edge. Um, most folks that I work with who have those little bits of discomfort initially, after a couple hours, a day, um, those walls really break down. And most of the time, I would say all the time in my experience, um, folks are so glad that they did because a whole other world opens up to them. I, I mentioned, Micah, that you use this term of people feeling exiled in the contemporary world, exiled from being, this is my language now, embedded and part of the living earth, uh, a phrase that you use. And what I want to get at here is for you to paint the picture of how you see yourself as part 
of, you have this quote, we are an evolutionary expression of the evolving earth. And, uh, you know, I feel like in the book, you're pointing to something. And I want to see if you can point to that for our listeners here of what it's like to really feel like, not that you're an exile, but that you're an expression of an evolving earth. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, like we use this term nature um, in our society to talk about, you know, the outdoors. And it's very, um, it's kind of a, it's very dualistic in a way. Um, because when we, when we talk about nature as something external, something out there, we take ourselves out of the equation. And I think even in like conservation and environmental circles, sometimes this is the case where we see ourselves as something other than the earth. And we're kind of here in this role of like, how can we care for the earth? And um, when the reality is, is that we evolved like right up out of the soup of this planet, you know, you could make the argument that we are carrying the consciousness of earth in our consciousness. We are an expression of, or we are the consciousness of, or one version of earth's consciousness. Um, because we evolved right here. And so for me, like that way of thinking about it that way, um, breaks down some of the, uh, walls that we use to separate ourselves from like quote unquote nature. Um, so what I'm, I guess what I'm pointing to in the book is that, um, that we're at a point in our evolution as a species in our society where, um, you know, we now realize that we can, we can either destroy the life support systems that we rely on to be here as a species, or we can support them and enhance them and as well as support and enhance the, those support systems that support all life on earth. So we're at this very powerful moment. And uh, Thomas Berry refers to it as like, it's the great work, you know, as we transition from this place of looking at the earth as a resource that we are here to use to seeing the earth as a part of us. And like, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say that we're in a state of interbeing with all life on this planet. And so the book and rewilding is just sort of my offering toward how do we begin to, um, from a personal standpoint, begin to make that transition um, through, through, through contact and relationship with, um, with this earth, which, which is very much alive. And, um, and, and I believe, which is speaking um, in its own ways, you know, how can we listen? Um, How can we work with the earth? Um, which is really working with ourselves. Okay, just two final questions, Micah. You gave us some good instructions for the sit-spot practice. I wonder if you could give us some basic instructions for a rewilding walk that we could take, whether we live in a city or we live in a place that has more trails and uh, more of a nature walk. Sure. What's your suggestion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and in the book, I, I, I kind of give like a, a, a step-by-step process of how you can do that. Um, so, you know, one of the first things to do would be to um, do a little bit of research on the history of your land. Um, so just before you go on the walk, you know, if you can, learn a little bit about the indigenous people on your land. Um, learn a little bit about the history of your land, uh, the pre-colonial and the colonial. You know, anything you're interested about, just 
begin to learn just a little bit. That'll stimulate your awareness um, before your walk. It'll open up your senses a little bit. It'll change your experience slightly and begin to help you overcome that place blindness. Um, and then, you know, if you're going to, if you have a spot in mind where you're going to do your walk, um, when you get to that place, that threshold from where, you know, you've just been traveling to where you're about to begin your rewilding experience, um, it's really nice to pause there and um, center yourself. Maybe you close your eyes, take a few deep breaths in and out, um, let go of your day, let go of what came before. Um, just invite your presence, invite your awareness into your body. Notice how you're feeling. And then maybe set an intention for your walk. And perhaps it's just, just to be present with what you're noticing as you're moving across the land. You might open your eyes and just take a look around. Just notice what you can see, feel, hear, touch, sense, smell. Um, and then what I like to do is do a, just a little bit of mindful movement. So if you know a little bit of yoga or qigong or um, maybe just some gentle stretches, just take a moment to kind of stretch out, warm up your body, um, and then just begin to walk with awareness. Um, you know, so this is a time to um, let your mindfulness practice really come in and be very mindful of each step, move slowly, and stay connected with your breath. So just a little bit of mindful walking and very much keeping your senses open and aware of what's happening. Um, at a certain point in your walk, you might pause again and just be still and notice what's going on around you. Um, and then you could do a sensory invitation. So you might say, All right, you know, I'm going to focus on my sense of touch. And for the next portion of your walk, reaching out and feeling the bark of the trees, feeling the moss of the stones, uh, feeling the, the texture of the earth, the, 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 whatever the soil is near you, the grass, sand, whatever it might be. Um, maybe touching leaves on a tree and just noticing how they feel. Um, awakening that sense of touch. And then um, you might want to take 15 minutes or so and find a place where you can sit and do your sit spot practice. And that's a time to just settle in, slow your breath, and then take 15 minutes to watch any movement that is moving around you. And let that be your meditation. When your mind wanders, you just come back and notice movement. You might notice like a, like a squirrel scurrying through the forest or you might have little chickadees sort of landing in the trees near you. You might hear the caw of a crow kind of soaring over and across the land. Just letting each one of these gifts just kind of draw your attention like even deeper into the present moment. And after about 15 minutes with that, you might get up and, you know, this would be the time where in the book I say, hey, this is a good time for what we sometimes call bushcraft or like earth skills. So this could be a time where you might have a little project. Maybe you're working on um, making your own um, cordage out of plant fibers that you're foraging for. Or maybe you know that there are some uh, wild edibles that are in your area, and this might be a nice time to go on a little forage. Um, this could be a time where maybe you're going to make a small fire. You're going to work on your bow drill kit. Um, you're just going to start working on these skills that um, you enjoy doing that are meditative, um, that are ancient, 
and that connect you to an old way, an ancient way of being on the land and being in relationship with the land. And that could be 15 minutes. It could be an hour, you know, out there working on a little hand project, a little handcraft. Um, and then when that's complete, um, you could take a few breaths and just reflect on your experience. It might be a nice time to journal. If you're doing this with a group of other people, this would be a great time for a council practice. Maybe you stand or sit in a circle and just pass a stone around. Each person gets to share their experience. And then you can go back and carry on with your day. And then, Micah, just to conclude our conversation, this show is called Insights at the Edge, and you suggested to listeners find their own edge when it comes to rewilding, whatever that might be, where where they're at. The people may not be ready to go, as you called it, uh, sleep in, was it a debris shelter? Yeah. Is that the word you used? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'm ready for a debris shelter, but uh, I know where my edge is, you know, so that's, I think that's good advice. And my question to you is when you think of your own edge in the process of rewilding, Micah Mortali, what is it? Hmm. Ah, oh, that's a great question. Hmm. I think for my edge, um, I think for my edge right now, um, you know, what I'm working with currently, um, well, there's a number of things, but I think, um, I think one of them for me is, um, how do I, um, how do I maintain my daily practice of rewilding, um, with, with my busy life, um, as I said, like, um, you know, I've got, I've got a full-time job and, you know, to and from work and all these things. So, you know, for me, my edge is maintaining that daily practice of connecting with the living earth. And so, um, what I've been doing recently, which is very new is I've started, um, I've started running outside. I've never been a runner. Um, but in the last few months I've been going outside about five times a week and I've been, running and and here in the berkshires it's it's almost winter so it's like snowing and raining and cold a lot of the time and i've been running in that weather and on the land that i love and it's been like a really surprising and unexpected uh new experience in my rewilding journey um because people have been running for a really long time and i've always hated running <laughs> i've never been a runner um but I have, for some reason, just really opened up to it. And uh, I really have felt it just become like a whole new um, part of, of my experience because it really does get me out there and get me into my senses and into all kinds of weather and out into wild places alone, oftentimes at night. And um, I've really been enjoying it. So um, that's been kind of a new sort of edge for me and something I'm enjoying a lot. What I really appreciate about your answer is here, you've written the book on rewilding, quite literally, but it's still challenging. It's just challenging, even for someone like yourself, with the demands of our contemporary life, to have the time that you long for to be outside. That's interesting. Yeah. Micah, thank you so much. Thanks for your vulnerability, your great intelligence, your love, and the beautiful new book you've written, Rewilding, Meditations, Practices, and Skills for Awakening in Nature. 
Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Tammy. And uh, I, I'm just incredibly grateful for the opportunity and uh, to, to work with your team and uh, for for all of the wonderful work that you and Sounds True um, do and, and the information you spread. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. Thanks for having me on uh, the podcast. Michael Mortali is the director of the Kripalu Schools, which includes the School of Yoga Ayurveda Integrative Yoga Therapy and also the School of Mindful Outdoor Leadership, which he founded in 2018, and the author of the new book from Sounds True called Rewilding. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.